Jeff was psychologically profiled and convicted for murder and rape at the age of 16. And then after 16 years in prison and numerous appeals, he was finally exonerated. He started his own foundation, the Deskovic Foundation, to help exonerate more people in his position. He's done a TEDx talk, and he works alongside lawmakers to make much-needed changes in our criminal justice system. Come on, let's do a background check on Jeff Deskovic. Let's go! Have you or someone you know had your life turned upside down because of your past? Of course I have. Everyone does background checks now, which makes it hard to bounce back. What do you believe? I believe your background shouldn't hold you back. It, sh- it should pay you back. This podcast will inspire you, motivate you, and inform you with everything you need to rise above your past and, and not be afraid to say, go, go ahead, check my background. My name is J. Dan Gum, and this is Background Check. You already know. Let's go. You can check my background. I'm a forgiving felon, so tell them that I won't back down now. You can bet I won't live in regret. It's time to earn some respect. You are tuning in to Background Check. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Background Check Podcast. I'm your host. Jaden Gum, and as always, it's brought to you by Forgiven Felons, helping people with the past realize their future. So, Background Check Podcast, we are all about sharing stories of people who have risen above their background, whether it's a wrongfully convicted background, a rightfully convicted background, stories of, of organizations and judges and lawyers, people that help people, help others rise above their background, whether it's addiction, incarceration, Whatever it is, a troubled childhood, you know, there's so many stories out there. And we want to bring those stories to you. And we, uh, we, we just love having the honor and the privilege of every guest that comes on the show. But listen, um, go to ForgivenFellows.org if you want to know more information. We do have some things coming up. Open House is January 23rd at the house. And that's open to the general public. We're going to have um, our Christmas party was postponed. Uh, because my daughter had COVID. Uh, she didn't show any symptoms. We're doing fine. Everything's great, but we had to postpone that Christmas party. So we're going to have that January 23rd, Saturday night, from 5 to about 7.30, and just coming together, eating. We're going to provide the meats if you want to come, bring a side dish. Also, uh, we're going to have uh, watch the fight, the UFC fight, later that night after uh, uh, the women and children leave. I guess the women can stay if they want to watch the fights. Uh, just a great time of fellowship with the guys uh, after that. So also don't forget, you can watch our documentary, three episodes on Roku TV, wherever you have the Roku app on your phone, tablet, you may have a Roku TV. You can just search for Given Felons and watch that. Uh, the Resource Center is the thing. I mean, we are just, we're, we're moving forward full force with this. We're finding so much favor and some other things are happening I won't give it all away, but there's a food truck involved. Uh, but some good things are happening to uh, our organization, and we're very excited about it. So stay tuned, all right? So today on the show, we're very fortunate to have uh, Richard Miles from Episode 2, wrongfully convicted of murder, did 15 years, got out, started Miles of Freedom. But today we have another wrongfully convicted person named Jeff Deskovic. This guy was convicted of murder and rape and so much prosecutorial misconduct. It's crazy. He's got a documentary short out there. We're going to be in the show notes, the link to that. Uh, he's, he's done a TEDx talk. How cool is that? That's on the show notes too. Go to the website, forgivenfelons.org, background check, and you'll see 
all the pictures of him, the things he's done, all the links. You need to follow him on social media. But I'm very excited because he has started his own foundation out of his misery, out of his, you know, uh, what he had to go through. And he, and he literally went through hell. When you are in prison convicted for a sex crime, they, they don't treat you like, oh, you're innocent? Oh, okay. No, they treat you as a child molester. And so he went through some crap in prison. And so it was a great interview. It, it made me happy to see what he's doing because of it, but it also kind of pissed me off uh, to hear all the, the, the court drama and the, just the corruption and just made me so mad. Jeff is a great guy. We could have talked for three hours, and so I didn't really get a chance to ask him all the questions I wanted to ask, but here is his story and what he does. All right, Jeff, welcome to Background Check Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, Now, I've said your last name several times, I mean numerous times, but I've been practicing it, and I still don't know if I have it right, so... Can you say it with your full-on New York accent, the way you're supposed to say it? How's it supposed to sound? Jeffrey Deskovic. Deskovic. Right. All right. All right. Uh, I was kind of like, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what I was putting. I was like Deskovic. I was saying some weird stuff, but I like I like the way that's, say, it, say it one more time. Deskovic. That's awesome. Well, Jeff, Jeff Deskovic, um, I'm so glad you're here, man. Uh, one of our first interviews was with someone who was wrongfully convicted and we haven't had one on since. So it's, it's an honor and a privilege to get to uh, interview you today and hear your story for, for all my listeners, you're going to get a treat today hearing Jeff and what he's been through and how he's come out of it and what he's doing because of it. So Jeff, why don't you, Tell us who you are right now, what you do right now, then we'll backtrack and go back to how you got here. Absolutely. I like, I like that. Uh, I like doing it that way. Yes. That's nice. That's that's different than what most people do. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm an attorney and I'm uh, the founder of the Jeffrey Deskovic foundation for justice, which uh, has freed 10 wrongfully convicted people. And we also pursue policy changes. Thank you. That are aimed at, preventing wrongful conviction in the first place. Um, videotaping, uh, videotaping interrogations, identification reform, DNA database expansion. Uh, I'm a advisory board member of the coalition group, It Could Happen to You, which uh, the foundation is part of. And we have chapters in New York, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut. Uh, we've been able to pass three additional laws pertaining to um, the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct. That's oversight for the prosecutors. Uh, a tweak of that. Uh, discovery law uh, reform, which pertains to sharing information between the defense and the prosecution. Uh, we did that in New York and in Pennsylvania. We recently um, uh, passed um, uh, HB uh, 440, which uh, provides that anyone who's been arrested for any crime in Pennsylvania, if they ultimately win their case, through regardless of how, whether they're acquitted at trial, dismissed, exonerated, their records are automatically expunged. Wow. Uh, so that's huge absolutely yes so that's what we're doing in in three states um in terms of current campaigns we're working at um removing the exceptions for videotaping interrogations we're doing that in new york we're trying to repass the commission uh there and in pennsylvania it's one of 15 states that do not have compensation 
So, and that makes me so mad. Yeah. Imagine well, if you have spent time in prison wrongfully and then you are exonerated and you're released and you have no way of being compensated. The state doesn't have a law to do that. Yeah. So, and, I mean, to me, compensation is just a, a way of holding them accountable. If you know that, if you know that there's going to be a, a price to pay, if you get caught for, for the false testimony, false coercion, whatever, then you're going to be less likely to do it when there's no compensation and then combine that with very little accountability for these officers that the corrupt ones that, that do these things, it, it, it makes it tough. It, it really, it really does. Yes. And so we want to also pass the commission there to have oversight for prosecutors. Whereas in California, again, we're trying to have the, we're trying to pass that bill to in California, I go state by state to have the oversight for the prosecutors. And we're also trying to get rid of capital punishment in, in California. So we think there's a chance to do that. So that's what we're doing now. Uh, the last thing I'll mention is, um, so I'm also I sit on the uh, Global Advisory Council for um, Restorative Justice International. So uh, we talk about the application of restorative justice and applying that to exonerees. And, you know, we also get behind uh, political candidates that are uh, that have restorative justice and criminal justice reform as part of their plank. Maybe the last thing, no lying this time, that uh, I'll, I'll mention <laughs> is uh, there is a uh, there is a documentary short uh, about my. Yes, uh, we're, we're going to talk about that anyway. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Called uh, yeah, called um, conviction, which is available on Amazon Prime. So that's why. And listen, I've seen that. I've seen that, and I'm telling you, if you're listening to this episode, you need to go. Uh, you need to get Amazon Prime and listen to this. Now, the reason it's only on Prime and not on other streaming platforms is why Jeff because um the because we're we've uh, we're, so we've been selected in seven um documentary film festivals we won three awards uh, awarded distinction congratulations uh, thank you uh, Gia Wertz, the producer did an incredible job so we have awarded distinction um best documentary best cinematography the reason why it's not available on other platforms at this time is because we've applied and are waiting for decisions from other documentary film festivals and if we made it available on other platforms right now we would disqualify ourselves but um, yeah. but at some point in the near future you know we'll have a decision on on all the other remaining applications that we filed to appear and on their festivals and when that's finished it'll then be available on on additional platforms yeah and listen uh it's called conviction right yes it is and so um if you have prime amazon prime already you can watch it on prime video if uh if you don't have amazon prime um go ahead and get it and watch it it's worth it you get a lot of good de uh, free delivery and shipping and two-day delivery uh this is not an ad for amazon but it's 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 trying to get you to get prime so you can watch this now uh it's an amazing story we're going to hear a little bit about it uh from jeff but yeah you know we disqualified ourselves we forgiven felons has a documentary out there and and uh and we got it on roku tv and tubi tv which kind of disqualifies us from going and, and putting it in all these festivals so we, we kind of did it backwards but a lot of people are out there watching it and and so uh but i'm glad you guys are doing it the right way you said a lot of good things in that in that uh documentary and we're going to talk about it as your story as you unfold your story for us today so let's see is there anything else about what you do now that anybody needs to know yes uh yeah i think that they need to know that uh, i'm certified as an instructor in police academies in new jersey 
where for the last awesome. for the last six years, twice a year, uh, they bring me in to co-teach the morals and ethics. Um, there's a certain type of instruction that lawyers, whether uh, defense attorneys, prosecutors, or judges, that they have to complete a certain number of hours. That's called a CLE, which just stands for Continued Legal Education. And I've right. served as a CLE instructor on four different occasions in front of uh, groups of judges. Uh, I've done about four or five present uh, CLEs in front of groups of prosecutors. And I've also done another six in front of um, defense attorneys. So the legal community, all different perspectives, they, um, they bring me in to give them instruction. Uh, I'll share that I regularly meet with elected officials. I testify legislative hearings and I'm proud Good. to say that my body of work as an advocate and my, my general stature, you know, has led my endorsement to be given in 10 different political races where candidates were running on a anti-wrongful conviction slash criminal justice reform plank. Wow. Well, I tell you, you deserve to get your name out there everywhere uh, you can, man, because you're, you're a hero to me. Let's talk about, um, let's talk about your story, man. 17 years old, huh? Uh, I was 16 originally. Yes. 16. Then, Where'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up? Tell us about your family, your childhood, and then work your way into, uh, what happened that night? I was, uh, so I was living in Peekskill. It's in, in Westchester County, New York. It's the suburbs. It's middle-class. It's ethnically, ethnically diverse, I uh, have a younger brother that's three and a half years uh, younger than me. It's me, him, my mother, and my grandmother living uh, living together. I grew up in an apartment complex. I, there was a lot of kids that lived in that apartment complex in the neighborhood nearby. And I was one of the main two kids that, you know, kind of whatever we suggested to do would be what we would do. We were going to ride bikes if we're playing Monopoly that night, if we're going swimming and we're playing stickball, basketball, kickball. Yeah. Listen, we even invented certain games that we played. Of course. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's who I, so that's who I was, um, you know, growing up, but, um, you know, early on, uh, I actually skipped first grade, you know, I, I, I did well enough that they, they, they skipped me uh, up a grade wow. and later that would, um, that kind of caught up with me in high school. So, I mean, that's why I was outside of school, but in school, like I was, I was quiet. I was to myself and the kids were like a year older than me and they were into other things. Like they were into drinking beer and parties and chasing girls and organized sports. And, you know, I was playing sports, but not, not organized. I was, I was right. just playing pickup games and I wasn't really into that. So, and they were all like a year or two older than me. So I didn't quite fit in. And so, you know, that ultimately would become a factor in my story. Wow. You know, I've, I experienced that same thing. I didn't skip a grade, but my mom actually, she was teaching at the private school we were going to and the daycare called her and said, look, he's so smart. You need to get him in school somewhere. Well, they didn't have like a, a pre-K three. And so, but they had a pre-K four. And so they put me, my birthday's in January. Uh, so it's, it's going to be next week. So my birthday's in the middle of the year. And so they put me in K four when I was two and a half. Mm -hmm. Wow. So in the middle of my K four year, I would turn three. Mm. And I, and I was, I ended up being like that all the way, like my senior year in high school, I was 16 and didn't mm -hmm. turn 17 until halfway through my senior year. So that, that dynamic that you're talking about, I kind of, I kind of relate to that. Sure. 
so the year was 1990 and a classmate of mine uh, named Angel Correa, uh, who was a who was an immigrant from uh, Colombia. She had been in the year for about a year and a half. Uh, she was leading a very sheltered life, as I understand it. Uh, she never went anywhere unless she was accompanied by her older sister uh, or her parents. So on November 15th, 1989, uh, her, her, she went missing and her body was found uh, a couple of days later, November 17th. It was found um, naked from the waist down. And so there hadn't been a murder in Peekskill for maybe 20 years. So this created an atmosphere of fear, rumor, paranoia, and parents were concerned with their own safety and, and also their safety, the safety of their children. I mean, they were literally yeah. driving their kids to high school, picking them up and bringing them, bringing them straight, uh, straight home. I mean, there were town hall meetings uh, set up and safety tips were instituted. And yeah, it was very, uh, very intense time. And so at some point um, I got on the police radar so they interviewed a lot of students from the high school, and some of them told the police that they might want to speak with me because I didn't fit in. So I guess the underlying thinking is people that are quiet, that don't quite fit in, they commit heinous yep. crimes. So that was the underlying yep. thinking. Uh, secondary factor was I was kind of a sensitive teenager, and this was my first real brush with death. And, uh, you know, I had like an emotional reaction to it. And, yeah. you know, but, so there was that in one way, but then in another way, I mean, it kind of emotionally impacted the whole community. I mean, to the point that free mental health services were set up for, were offered to anyone who wanted it in Peekskill. Uh, so the police, though, they interpreted, you know, they thought it was strange that I would have this emotional reaction to the death of a classmate that I barely knew. I mean, she was in a couple classes of mine as a freshman, uh, one as a sophomore. I knew her name, she knew mine, and that was it. We weren't even really on a high-buy basis. And, yeah. a, and a third thing I'll say is that a reinforcing factor is that the Peekskill Police Department, they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that psychological wow. profile, and so it was type of reinforcing factor. Wow. So, I mean, what, what kind of checks and balances can, can there be in place when, when so many things line up like that psychologically, emotionally, um, what are, what are some ways that, you know, well, I think, if the, I think on the police level, I mean, if they, they were to not have tunnel vision and, you know, which is when you form a conclusion and then just work towards confirming that, uh, I don't think, I don't think that just any one set way that someone is supposed to react to death and that's normal yeah. anything outside of that is suspicious uh, so i think that there's that um, but that's only that that's only why i got on the police radar so let yeah. me tell unfold a little bit more of the story so yeah. before i was a teenager uh I, I before i was a teenager the career i wanted to have when i grew up was to be a cop and so that interacted with one that intersected with one of the police tactics so um Every time I and I had a lot of meetings with the police for about six weeks, they played this game with me in which um, when they would meet up with me half the time, they would speak to me like a suspect. And then when they would push too hard and I would start to become frightened and want to get out of there, that's when they would switch it up. And, you know, Jeff is this junior detective helper. 
theme was gotcha. yeah look the kids won't talk yeah because because in the in the documentary i felt like you described it as this was your opportunity to kind of you thought they were asking you to help play junior detective yes right? exactly yes exactly yes exactly right yes yes um uh, they they also played the the good cop get bad cop technique, which is when the one officer takes a more aggressive role. Right, on him, right, right. Other one pretends to be. Now you were sixteen now, right? I was sixteen years old, and my father was so, never involved in my life. But in New York, in New York, sixteen is considered an adult. Yes, correct? yes, it is correct. That's exactly right. You're considered to be an adult. For That's purposes crazy. of waiving your rights and being able to uh, speak to the police without a that lawyer. That needs to change too. A hundred percent. I mean, they won't let you vote at sixteen, but you're you're old enough and mature enough to waive your rights, right? Yeah, and and you can't smoke and you can't drink and you can't do all this. There's that, that's crazy that 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 they consider that. So I began to look at this police officer who was pretending to be my friend. I began to look up to him as like a father figure. And so, um, you know, eventually they they got me to agree to take a polygraph test, sometimes called lie detector test. And by telling me, look, we got some new information in the file and we want to share that with you. And that will allow you to be even more helpful to us. We just got to pass test and plus once you pass it we can stop that part of it where we talk to you as a suspect we can just focus in on solving this crime so i'm like yeah let's do it now yeah. and they're like no come come tomorrow come tomorrow so the next day instead of going to the high school i instead went to the police station um for this test where i thought it was going to happen at and instead, they drove me to the town of Brewster, which is in Putnam County. So they drove me across county lines about 40 minutes away, which means I'm not able to leave on my own. I'm completely dependent upon the police. Uh, there's three officers who came with me from Peekskill. But then there's also the polygraphist, who's a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he's dressed like a civilian. And so he never identified himself as an officer. Mm. He never read me my rights. So they gave me this brochure which explained how the how the polygraph worked but it had a lot of big words in it which i didn't understand but i figured well i'm here to help the police so what does it matter yeah. let's just yeah. get on with it so i had no attorney present they didn't give me anything to eat and then they put me in the small room and they wire me up by giving me a lot of many cups of coffee and then they literally wire me up to the polygraph and then this polygraphist launches into his third degree tactic. So he. Wow. I mean, it, everything was very strategic. Yes. In fact, he testified that he carried out this procedure, which he called uh, GTC, uh, get the confession. So he, he launches into his third degree tactic. So he invades my personal space. He raises his voice at me. He keeps asking me the same questions over and over again. And, um, you know, he, he's making me more and more frightened. And, you know, he, he, yeah. he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Wow. Towards the end, he said, I guess he was exasperated at that point, right? After like close to seven hours, he says, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through this test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And so that's wow. when the cop who was pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and he told me, look, the other officers are going to harm you. Um, I've been holding them off. I can't do this any longer. You got to help yourself. Look, just tell them what they want to hear. You know, they'll stop what they're doing. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. Uh, being young, naive, frightened, 
16. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking yeah. about the long term. I just wanted to get the hell out of there, man. I was in fear. Yeah. I was in fear of my life because I, I the fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either. It loomed very large in my mind. And, you know, then he's gave me this false promise. He's thrown the possibility of harm in the air. So I, I just wanted to get out of there. I decided to make up a story based on the information which they gave him and the, they gave me in the course of that interrogation. By the time it was all said and done, Man. I collapsed onto the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. And obviously I was arrested. I was actually charged with a murder and rape. Wow. I can't imagine as a 16 year old, you know, I mean, there's other documentaries out there, uh, making a murderer where they, uh, interrogate, you know, the disabled kid and, and, and the way their tactics, I just, you know, I just don't understand what goes through the mind of corrupt detectives and police officers. I just watched a documentary not too long ago called trial four. I watched that. I don't know if, Yeah. You know, and, and, and to see that even in 2018, the Boston police are still trying to cover uh, cover up, you know, the fact that that guy is innocent from, you know, the murder right. and that they still believe that he's guilty and all that. I, and I just don't get our system, man. I know when people that have never had to experience the other side of our system, whether it's rightfully convicted or wrongfully convicted, um, they treat us all the same. They, they treat you guys just like they treat us rightfully convicted uh, people. But when, when people that have never experienced that other side of our system, whether in the courtroom, where there's racial disparity, uh, the sentencing, sentencing disparity by races, um, there's, uh, you know, all the stuff that the sentencing, the, um, the bail, the bail methods. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's crazy. And, and I just don't understand how our system can get to this point. And I guess because it's, it's almost all they know and, and there's so much money involved and under, under the table payments, probably that it just seems like it's never going to change. So and just to piggyback, you know, per the national registry of exonerations, you know, there've been 2,710 exonerations nationally just from 1989 forward. You know, in uh, in Texas in 2020, I think we had 13 or 14 in 2020 alone, and none of those made the news. None of them was, you know, hey, look, we got it wrong. You know, right. I think if the system would just every once in a while come up and say, hey, we got it totally wrong, you know, rather than just say, well, they're letting you go, but we still believe that you did it. I agree with you completely that that really just prevents closure. You know, it, yeah. it, it prevents healing. It leaves an air of suspicion, you know, around the defendant. So, so, so you, you were charged and convicted. Um, what was going through your 16 year old mind at that point? I couldn't believe it. I thought I was beside myself. You know, I, I just, I couldn't fathom. I couldn't fathom it. And did you go to Rikers? No, no, because it was not, I was arrested in Westchester. So I went to um, Valhalla, okay. Westchester County jail what what was that like that was um that was like in this nightmare scenario i mean i'd never been arrested for anything i'd never been in jail before you know um i had a i had a target on my back because i was arrested you know for a rape with the murder sex offense yeah sex offense yeah, yeah. and you know the idea of being you know in 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 a jail cell and and having fully 
fully developed men around me and, you know, and and to sell bars, you know, it was, uh, I was housing. I almost lost it. I got depressed and, you know, I made a suicide attempt. So I was um, ultimately housed in the uh, mental health wing of the jail. And um, after about uh, 35 days, uh, I was um, released on bail. And I naively thought that I was going to go back to my old life that I've described, but there would never be going any going back to my own life. So I was uh, I was a hated figure in in peak skill. My hate my every time I made a court appearance, it was a major media moment in Westchester County. Um, Everybody thought I was guilty. And, you know, that conclusion is because the police said that. And then the report of the confession and then uh, parents would not allow their their kids to play with me my former friends not that they would have wanted to anyway because i was hated and i was not allowed to go back to school while my case was pending and so that when i realized that and the enormity of what the police had done that that led me to make an an additional suicide attempt where i I took a a, a bottle of um extra strength tylenol which and i went to sleep and i intended never to wake up and uh, i did wake up and they were able to save me and I was involuntarily hospitalized for six months uh, until just before the uh, court proceedings um, got started. So, so is it, was it a long trial? Yeah, it was about, uh, it was about two weeks Uh, before I went to trial. uh, The DNA test came in from the FBI lab, which showed that semen found in and around the victim didn't come from me. And so you would think that that would be the end of the case. So how did they how do they skirt around that? They skirted around that by getting the medical examiner to falsely claim that he he just re, he remembered that he had forgot to document six months ago, hundreds of autopsies ago, he forgot to document medical evidence, which he claimed to show that the victim was promiscuous. So to wrongfully huh. convict me, they were willing to trash your reputation. No, no, this wow. this the, the, the semen not matching Deskovic doesn't mean he's innocent. Uh, she slept with yet another person before Deskovic murdered her and raped her. Uh, wow. Taking it a step further, they named another youth by name, but they never set the proper evidentiary foundation. So they never called him as a witness. They never got a DNA sample from him. Um, they just made the unsupported argument to the jury. Um, when the DNA didn't match me, the cops went back in the field and they interviewed 17 witnesses who knew the victim in one capacity or another. And everybody told them that, you know, she didn't have any boyfriend. There was no consensual sex, but the cops purposely did not document any of those witness interviews. So that wasn't turned over. And then the, yes. So they did all, they did those things. And then in addition to that, the not content with having coerced a confession out of me, again, keeping in mind that, it wasn't videotaped. It wasn't audio taped. There was no signed confession. It was just their word. So you know that they left the threat and false promise out yep. of their testimony. Yep. But not content with having done that, uh, they also falsely attributed a statement to me. They claimed that I told them that I didn't know if the perpetrator uh, ejaculated or not. And that word wasn't in my vocabulary as a 16-year-old. And, and that doesn't appear in any of their early police reports, the written accounts of the interrogation, it only appears after the DNA doesn't match me. So it seems clear that they fabricated that to help the prosecutor get around the DNA. Yeah. Wow. And I had a public defender and, uh, you know, you kind of get what you pay for. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he didn't interview a call. He never interviewed a call as a witness by alibi. 
He never cross-examined the medical examiner to discredit him. He never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He didn't use that to challenge the confession. Uh, he rarely met with me. He, you know, he uh, when I, he probably thought you were guilty. Right. I, I agree with that it, until the DNA didn't match me. And then, you know, the in conclusion was uh, inescapable. Uh, he should have never represented me because of a conflict. So that other youth that the prosecutor was falsely claiming had slept with the victim was represented by another member of Westchester County Legal Aid. So that conflict prevented the defense yeah. from asking him for a sample. It prevented the defense from calling him as a witness. And lastly, you know, he wouldn't allow me to take the stand in my own defense. He refused to put on a defense. He said, look, um, it's uh, not my job to prove you're innocent. They got to prove you're guilty. And you know, and I know that while that might be a legal principle, that's an incredibly <laughs> naive way to practice law, man, especially yes. in a case where there's a conviction. I mean, I mean, confession, you don't answer that confession. If you don't disprove it five ways to Sunday, uh, you're going down, man. You're, not a lie, you're going down. And see, and see, you have to defend because when there's corruption on the prosecution side, prosecutorial misconduct that's working overtime to falsely convict you, yes. you need to work over, you need to work overtime to defend yourself. Right. And, 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 oh man, have you ever had a chance? I mean, I don't even know if that public defender is still alive or. Yeah. Well, I, I it, saw him. I didn't get a chance to speak with him because when you yeah. litigate against somebody, you know, you, you, you don't, you're not supposed to speak with them, but there's one more thing from the trial I want to get to. And then we're going to come right. We'll come back. Yeah. To that point. Yeah. Um, so if all that wasn't enough, um, so the victim's clothes, including her bra, had been entered into evidence and the jury asked to see it. And we thought that was important because one of the statements that I made, I remember that I remember making is I said that I ripped her bra off. So when the jury asked to see that, we thought that was good because there's some bras that you, you can't rip off. And it right. was at that moment that the court informed us, they said that, well, this evidence has been left in the courtroom over the weekend, and the custodians apparently thought that it was garbage. Oh, God. And it's been thrown out, and it's not available. And he, he refused to declare a mistrial. He substituted a photo in which you said he said you could almost see a, the bra. He substituted a photo oh, for the actual bra. And the end result of all this, Jay, is that, that I was wrongfully convicted of a murder and rape, and I was given a 15 to life sentence, which I was sent to a men's maximum security prison to serve. Now, this judge told me at the sentencing hearing just before he imposed sentence, because I, you know, I begged him to overturn the verdict. I referenced the DNA, and he says to me, "Maybe you are innocent." Now, what do you expect the judge to to do? Wow! If a judge says to a defendant that has been convicted, "Maybe you are innocent." Don't you expect them to overturn the conviction? I mean, you know, but he didn't, but he didn't. He took the easy way out, man. He gave me yeah. 15 to life sentence in which I was um, sent to uh, Elmira Correctional Facility for. Wow. As a 17 year old. As a 17 year old. And you weren't uh, housed with other, you were housed with just. I was housed with a grown, grown men, grown men, grown men. Yeah. Cause I'll send a maximum. Yeah. When they charge you as an adult, they send you to yeah. a, an adult uh, maximum security prison. Yeah, man, Jeff, I am. It, it blows me away. You know, I've talked with other wrongfully convicted people, but uh, those were just murder charges. 
yours was murder and rape. And so it, it throws a whole different challenge and tension to it. Absolutely. You know? Yes. And, and um, so man in prison, I know because I've been in prison. So I know how hard it is for people with sex offenses to navigate prison life. So here you are as a 17 year old uh, inmate with grown men. Tell me what prison life was like, man. Yeah. I, I, so I would describe prison as a nonstop obstacle course featuring the guards, civilians, and other prisoners all as obstacles to the main goal, which was try to overturn the conviction and regain your freedom. You know, I, I, I lived in fear, frankly. I had that, always had that fear yeah. in the back of my mind that people were going to discover what I was incarcerated for and then all hell would break loose. You know, um, there were times where I was, um, you know, beat up and there was one time I nearly lost my life. I had to fight off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, um, thoughts of giving up. Um, at times, I, many times, I thought about suicide. Every time I lost an appeal, it was almost like I was wrongfully convicted all over again. And so in my mind, yeah. in my mind, I wasn't doing a 15-to-life sentence. I thought I was doing a year or two to the next appeal, which I was sure yeah. I was going to win because I was innocent and I believed in the system. And I thought that the higher up in the court system you went, the the, the, the better the judge's, you know, skill level was. And, right. you know, and I ultimately lost, uh, I ultimately lost seven appeals. And, seven. and I got, yes, I lost seven appeals. Uh, my appeal o over, over how many years, over 11 years, over 11 years. So let me just quickly highlight the injustices on, on, on the appeal appellate level. So, you know, the, the first court I went to, you know, my lawyer raised the issue of my innocence based on the DNA. You know, she argued, look, there isn't legally sufficient evidence. The verdicts against the weight of the evidence. Uh, prosecution has not proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, his Fifth Amendment rights were violated by the way the police questioned him. It was error to, you know, the whole evidence, throwing the evidence away, that, that aspect. Uh, the court, you, you know, polygraph results are not supposed to be allowed as evidence in the court. But the court, the, the judge fashioned this backdoor rule where he allowed this polygraphist to repeatedly swear to the infallibility of the polygraph result. Oh and he, 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 he indirectly repeatedly told the jury that I failed the test, you know. Um, so we raised that issue and, and all told there were 10 issues. They ruled that I was not in custody, that I was free to come and go, that the statements were voluntary. They ruled that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt. And then they got rid of every single issue in one sentence, writing that they looked at the remainder of my contentions and found them either to be without merit or not preserved for review. Wow. They went ruled against me. They went against me five, nothing on that. And it was all downhill from there. The re-argument motion was denied in one word, uh, denied. Uh, the Court of Appeals in New York State, you have to get permission to appeal to them. They denied me permission to appeal to them. I filed in federal court, but I lost there because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information pertaining to the filing procedure. So my petition arrived four days too late. Uh, so I lost there. Uh, and I challenged that ruling in the next uh, three courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court. But of course, they declined to give me permission to appeal to them. And, you know, that was um, that was it for the uh, that was it for my appeals. My appeals were um, uh, exhausted. So that took about uh, who was years. who was working your appeals? Yes. Yeah, so they, they gave me a they they 
gave me a court appointed attorney on the, on the state level. And then, um, on the federal level, I did have a private attorney. Some people came in the picture that I didn't know before and everybody contributed a certain amount of money. So I had a paid lawyer, but then that didn't matter because they, they filed the paperwork late, albeit from the inaccurate information by the court clerk. And then this uh, lawyer who had exonerated somebody else in the DNA case got herself appointed and she um, went to file the next three appeals for me, uh, you know, but it, it was to no avail. Uh, so then so, I'm, I'm out of appeals. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, so where, where did it turn around for you? Yeah. So when your appeals are over, the only way back in a court is if you can find some previously unknown evidence of innocence, or if there's been some new change in the law that they apply, you know, retroactively. So I wrote letters for four years, just looking for an attorney and investigator to work pro bono so that they could try to find some new evidence so I could try to get out. <laughs> Uh, rarely heard got any answers there other than the occasional no. Uh, I went to the parole board and because I maintained my innocence and rather than expressing remorse and, and uh, taking responsibility, I got turned down there. Uh, yep. It ultimately turned around one of the letters that I wrote. I wrote, in, I wrote in care of a publishing company, but someone in the publishing company sent it not to the author, but to an investigator. And the investigator, um, you know, she wrote me right away. And when, once I showed her that the DNA didn't match me, because she was skeptical of that, because she had never heard of a case where the DNA didn't match you, but a conviction had, had occurred. So when I sent her that, she became my champion and she tried to get people to take my case and she gave me ideas and she connected me to the Innocence Project. You know, she had told me, write them. She lobbied them outside, lobbied them. She got other people to lobby them. But then I also got lucky that this other woman, uh, Maggie Taylor, who worked in the intake department, um, you know, she had to present my case three times to the lawyers, you know, because they told her no the first couple of times. So she had to present it uh, three times before they, they, they agreed to take it. So uh, getting that representation was the first key thing. Second thing is the district attorney who had fought all of my appeals and blocked me from getting the testing and got me time barred. Uh, she left office. Uh, as I understand the backstory of it, you know, the new, her, the successor, her, the successor DA did and her didn't like each other. And she was in the middle of running for attorney general. So I think that I was allowed to have the testing, you know, she was hoping yeah. that it would you know, ruin her, her, her run, which is, you know, in part what happened. And the third thing is we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in that data bank. You know, he um, left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed the second victim, uh, Patricia Morrison, uh, who wow. was a school teacher and who had uh, who had two children. So she lost her life as a result of the police and prosecutorial misconduct and the whole breakdown of the of the justice system. So um, on um September 22nd, 2006, my conviction was overturned and I was released. I reported back to court November 2nd, 2006, um, at which point all the charges were dismissed uh, against me on actual innocence grounds, whereas he was um, arrested and uh, charged with the crime. There won't, there won't be any holding anybody accountable for that murder that happened while he was walking free and you were serving time for his original crime. Right. No. No, there will not be. You know, when I was exonerated and I 
interviewed a lot of lawyers, you know, you know, in the process of trying to decide who I was going to go with to file my civil suit, I always brought up to those lawyers. I said, well, what about the second victim's, you know, family? What if they wanted to bring a lawsuit, you know? Um, and uh, they all told me that it would be a tough claim, but it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be entirely impossible. But when I did speak with the, with the second victim's um, family, they, they said that, look, we, we just want to put this behind us, you know, yeah. bringing a lawsuit is in the opposite direction. I'm like, yeah, but you know, the, the children are without the mother now and, yeah. you know, it's difficult times and it can never bring her back, but it can make things a little bit better going forward, but they, they didn't want to do it. And so ultimately it was never pursued. Gotcha. So you're a lawyer now. When did you decide to go to law school and become a lawyer? Sure. So I was an individual advocate for about five years. Um, I was a columnist for a weekly newspaper and I was um, doing speaking engagements and I was um, doing media interviews and trading privacy for awareness and meeting the electeds. Uh, did some did some good things in the meantime. I mean, I, I helped ward off. Uh, there was an effort to bring the death penalty back to New York in 2007, and I helped ward that off with the obvious innocence argument. And I helped repeal the death penalty in Connecticut a couple of years after that, le legislatively. Uh, got a scholarship for Mercy College, uh, which I used to finish the bachelor's because the funding had been cut for college education for prisoners. I uh, did that, and then. Um, I got a master's degree from John Jay College of uh, Criminal Justice. My thesis was written on wrongful conviction causes and, and reform. And, and this was all after you, this all after you got, got out. All after yep. I got out. Yep. And at some point there, it took about five years, but I was finally um, financially compensated. And, you know, I was at that precipice, man. You know, do, you, do I just want to stay at the level where I am or do I want to take this thing to the next level? And do I want to, you know, try to, you know, free other people instead of just nibbling on the on the edges? I mean, I had sometimes on wrongful conviction cases, you know, the, the public relational part of it, they would put my name in the press release to support someone else and get increased attraction. And they would ask, hey, would you come in the court and sit down? You're a recognizable figure just for the visual. Maybe they'll take this one just a little bit more serious. Yeah. And so yeah, I yeah, did yeah. those things, but it was still kind of like nibbling on the edges, if you understand. Right. So I decided that I would, um, you know, I took a million and a half dollars from what I got. And um, I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. And we have been able to free 10 people, as I mentioned. Um, That's awesome. Thank you. But, and we did the policy work, but at some point um, that became not enough for me because I was, I wanted, I, I was tired of sitting in the front row of the courtroom. Yeah. I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table and I wanted to be able to represent, um, you know, some of the people and, you know, hence my foray in, in, into law school in, in pursuit of the dream of trying to exonerate others as, as, as an attorney. Y'all have exonerated, helped free 10 people. Yes. The foundation, the found, um, yeah, the found, yeah, the, so the foundation did, yeah. So at one point we had so, paid employees because uh, I made, okay. the, the, I made the the large contribution. I was writing a large check, and then you know after about three years, you know, frankly our fundraising didn't go well, and I had to get rid of the paid employees, and I converted it to a volunteer entity. Uh, so I have about like twenty something volunteers now. Three of them are are, are paralegals, and I have about five or six attorneys that 
when we approve of a case, you know, meaning we believe the innocence claim and we see a potential way to win, we pitch those cases to the lawyers, right? And if they take it on, then they would carry out the investigative and legal strategy of it. And doing it that way, you know, we, we have 10 other cases that are in progress now at various stages on the road to exoneration, you know, and that's better than not doing anything at all. But, you know, at the end of the day, though, Jay, you know, my, my dream is to, again, you know, be able to raise money to be able to, uh, well, to be able to, again, have a paid staff, because what happens right. is sometimes what should be done in six to eight months or 10 months or a year drags into two, three, four years, you know, yeah. so I want to be able to speed the process up because I know what it's like to be on the other end of that. And I want to increase our capacity. So, but in none right. of those, and in, in none of those cases, was I the attorney or, or even just second seating, you know, uh, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the, the that's the distinction. Okay. And so how do you, how do you use your position as lawyer? What do you, who do you, yes. do you represent? Yeah. So, uh, so we have, um, so I've entered a couple of the cases that, um, that, that are already in progress as a uh, second, the sec second, uh, second seating. So I'll be able to sit at the defense table one, you know, when we get to uh, you know, oral argument or evidentiary hearing. So there's a, you know, case coming up. Um, well, we're waiting. We're waiting for it to come up, actually, because yeah. uh, the COVID yeah, yeah. keeps causing delays and pushing things right. back. But uh, I'll, I'll do it that way. And, you know, there are a couple of when, when that's finished, you know, there are a couple of cases where I'll be the lead. Uh, I'll be the lead attorney on on. Uh, on so now do you all only do uh, cases that have already been tried and convicted? Yes. And you're trying to overturn them. Yes. You don't you don't represent anybody. Um, on the front post, end of it, uh, pre, pre conviction. No, right. no, we're only, we're only, no, okay. correct, exactly right. Yeah, we're just, we're just doing uh, wrongful conviction cases. So it's after it's been convicted. And I just want to make a quick distinction. We're, we're yeah. different than the Innocence Project and similar mission to organizations in that they will only take a case if there's DNA evidence. And that's yeah. only five to 12%. So while we would take a DNA case, um, you know, we, you know, we do non-DNA cases. Those are winnable as well. Those are harder, but there's four times the amount of exonerations there. And actually only yeah. one of our active cases right now uh, involves DNA. Only one of them does. Yeah, my friend Richard Miles uh, was a non-DNA. He was convicted based on uh, total false coerced testimony, mm -hmm. uh, which eventually recanted, but he could only find uh, Innocence Project would not take his case um he uh but he found centurion have you heard of centurion yes yeah, centurion I'm interested. Yeah, yes Jim yeah, mccloskey I, I, yeah Jim mccloskey and you know and, yeah of course of course the, them and uh kate germond and uh actually yeah. two of my volunteer paralegals used to work at centurion ministries and so um all right they wanted to, yeah they wanted to get back in the game and uh i need i had a need and it all came together god bless that's them so good much that. now do you only do cases in new york we well, if it's a, if it's a DNA case, we could do that nationally because that's uh, you know you don't have to run like um, labor intensive. It's really labor intensive and expensive to do a non DNA exoneration. I'm so investigative work out of state. Right. So the right. only time we would do a case out of state would be if there's like a local attorney there who's who's going to uh, you know we're going to assist the local attorney. So in gotcha. that way we would. So there are there are two out of state cases that we have that are that are in that uh, scenario. Yeah, my ultimate goal is to have a chapter in each state and eventually in each country, because I see this as a worldwide uh, oh, issue yeah. in the oh, yeah. countries where we don't hear about wrongful convictions is because not because they're not happening. There's, there's no exonerations happening. But to answer your next question, how do we get the cases? So people yeah. find us. 
So every I do a lot of media. I do a lot of new media as well. And um, so whenever um, friends and family and advocates of people who are allegedly wrongfully imprisoned, uh, you know, see and hear that, um, they they contact me. But in addition to that, uh, I'm I'm uh, <laughs> it's kind of unusual what I'm about to say, Jay. But uh, I'm kind I'm kind of a legend in the New York State prison system. Okay, so <laughs> my name is well known in the law libraries in the prison system. So uh, that's good. You know, that's so good. people write us all thing, the time. Man. No, it is. It it is. So you know, that's how they find us. And you know, this is another reason why you know I'm trying to trying to raise funds and trying to you know fully staff up. We have about like three or four hundred raw cases where you know they haven't been vetted yet. You know, and sometimes you know some of them the guys have been waiting three four five years just for us to do a thumbs up or thumbs down on it yeah you know, it, it it is it is an overwhelming number of uh of, of applications so i know in the documentary you talk about some of the some of the ways prison has changed you hmm. talk about a couple of a couple of those things sure so i mean there's i feel like i'm so there's a disconnect between you know, my physical age. So I'm now 47. I've been home for 14 years. I, I, you know, I was in prison from 17 to 32 to 16 years. So and I've been home for 14 years. Um, but I, I feel, I feel like I'm more like I'm 26, you know, I yeah. feel like I'm more 26 than a 47 year old. Uh, so there's that, you know, there is, uh, there is kind of like a stigma, you know, attached, you know, you were in prison 16 years wrongfully. Yeah. But you were there for 16 years. Right. So, you know, how much of that rubbed off on you? So when it comes to personal relationships, you know, that that has proven to be, um, you know, somewhat of an obstacle uh, afterwards. So it's um, changed me in that way. But, you know, not all of it is, is for the bad. I mean, I, I feel like I found my mission in life. I mean, I think this is what God wants me to do. That's how I'm absolutely. Sense. Yeah, it's this changed you for good and bad. Yeah. Yeah, I have the mission in life. And I believe I'm making a, a difference. And so I, you know, with that realization, you know, I, I have some inner peace and I have purpose. And so that's good. Uh, I do appreciate the small things uh, like I, I, Jay, I enjoy the fresh air, man. I, I like feeling yeah. the sun on my face and I like the freedom of movement and travel. You know, these are things that most people, including myself, before all this happened, man, before I, um, you know, I used, to, I used to take it all for granted, you know, but so I, I, I appreciate we, uh, that. We don't get a lot of snow in Texas. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the last time it snowed was just about an inch in 2015. Mm. And before that it was 2000, uh, I think nine or 10, mm. but we don't, we don't get a lot of snow in Texas. And so, you know, we have forgiven felons transitional houses. So mm. we have a, a few guys there. Uh, Daniel locked up 32 years, went in when he was 15 and he's wow. 47 now. Yeah. Uh, he got, he got out this past June, uh, Michael, Elizondo, he did 28 years mm. and he's 47 right now. Wow. These guys got to experience their first snow out of prison. Wow. Uh, and this, it snowed this past Sunday. And so I was yes. actually riding to church with one of them. And he's like, yeah, the last time I saw snow was through a little small window at the Ferguson unit in Texas. And that was the only wow. time he'd ever seen snow. So uh, to, to watch them just walk around in the snow and just enjoy it uh, was, 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 was pretty good. So hey, what, what do you, if you had the power, if, if, if someone that was leading our country came to you and said, Jeff, I'm going to give you the power to change one thing about our criminal justice system, 
whether it's federal or your or state you live in or state across the board, no questions asked. You say it, I'm going to change it. What would that be? Accountability for prosecutors. Okay. Is the- you know, what's, what's, what's neat is uh, we had a, uh, we had Senator Carl Sherman on here, uh, episode 15, and he's on the uh, appropriations committee for corrections in Texas. I asked him that same question. And he said that there would be accountability for prosecutor prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, we, we, I, we agree on that. Listen, it, it, it's the, it, it's the prosecutors who, you know, withhold evidence. It's the prosecutors who, you know, use, uh, use identification testimony, even if it was suggestive, they're the ones that use confessions, even if it was coerced with a ton of red flags, like, like in my case, you know, it's the prosecutors that often overcharge people more than yeah. what the charge should be. And that's all yeah. in an effort to get them to plead guilty to even more time than what would be the case if they were charged with, they're supposed to be charged they would, with, and then you may do the plea bargain, then, you know, it would be, it would be less. And, you know, it's the prosecutors that, you know, uh, send people back to prison on, on technical parole violations you know it's it's the prosecutors who could divert they could divert nonviolent offenders from from prison you know but instead seeking uh, seeking jail yeah. time and, 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 and enhancements yeah so it's so let me ask you this if a major motion picture movie was made about you and your life who would you want to play you in that I think, to, uh, well, you would have to, you would have to have several actors, right? Because there would be Jeff as 16, 17 year old, maybe, you know, and then me as an, as an adult afterwards. So uh, I, I'm not clear. Who would, who would play you now? Right. Who would play you now? That, as would, the be, adult that, that would be Tom Cruise without a doubt. Yeah. Cause he's got the black hair and he kind of like styles it, you know, combing it back. Listen, we used to, as a kid, we used to call it a, like a DA. You know, like the DA cut. <laughs> She's not realizing what a factor a DA would come to play in my life, right? Oh man. But uh that's <laughs> great, Jeff. yeah, but that's listen, I, I still have hope, Jay, that you know, one day I can get my story. I mean, you know, in, into the movie and you know, I'd love to have a book deal and you know, yeah. I do have the documentary short by Gia and she's uh, in the process of um converting that in, into a, a longer hour and a half long piece. But look, I want the book, I want to have the story, I'd love to have a one man show, I'd like to have a musical. I mean, you reach people through all these different mediums of art and 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 I want to reach as many people, you know, with my story. Um, that I can, because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it's about promoting the foundation and our work. And more importantly, somewhat is, is, you know, about wrongful conviction itself. And I'm just a tool yeah. in the fight. And the bigger I can right. make my profile, the more effective a tool I can be for everyone else going forward. Cause this isn't about me anymore. I'm, I'm, That's home. Right. I'm never going back. You know, I, I don't have to do this. I'm compensated. I could go on a, uh, an Island right now and just live a never ending mm-hmm. vacation and, and I could do it, but you know, I can't forget the people that I yeah. left behind. And I just want people to know too, you know, I work maybe 50, 60 hours a week. You know, I don't get a dime. I'm fine with that. I'm okay. How I am. I make something every month from, you know, the compensation, you know, is an investment. So dividends and interest. I never want to go back to being broke, but I'm here for everyone else. I'm here for everyone else. I just hope people can, you know, help in whatever ways that, uh, that, 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 that they can, you know, sooner, you know, so I'm just here with a man, a man in his mission, trying to please God and have inner peace and, you know, just walk this path and, you know, just be, you know, just be humble, man. My, I'm most proud of the fact that my head is the right size and my feet are firmly on the, I'm just Jeff. 
right? Except when I'm the advocate and then I'm that, yeah. but, but, but still just, just the servant, just the humble servant. I thank you for all your work. And I thank you for not just going and living on that Island. Maybe you can take some vacation each year to that Island, but I thank you that you didn't just disappear and, and live the rest of your life and, and that you're giving back. Yes. And, um, and I know God, God sees that and God loves that. And, uh, and the people, the 10 that, that has been exonerated personally through your foundation. Uh, I know they are very appreciative. If somebody wants to know more about your foundation, give us the website and I'm going to put it on the show notes. So it'll be there anyway, but just to let people be able to go right now, uh, tell us the website. Yeah. Deskovic, dot org. You can follow me on social media. I have a public figure page on Facebook. So whatever I put on my personal page, I'm close to the 5,000 limit. I copy it over to the public figure page. You won't miss anything. If you want to see my latest advocacy and, you know, media and new media interviews, such as this podcast and, and, uh, you know, many of the other things I'm doing and, and, and upcoming events and advocacy. And you, you got a, you got a virtual summit coming up in Pennsylvania, right? Yes, we do on this Friday with virtual summit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. New, uh, new era of, uh, accountability and criminal justice in the state of Pennsylvania. So I, I referenced that earlier, but you know, on that, we have like five panel discussions, including one on compensation and videotaping interrogations and another one on uh, prosecutorial uh, misconduct. And, you know, we've been able, we, we work in coalition. That's the other thing people listen, yeah. you know, listening in you, PA or CA or New York, we work in coalition and we arrive at consensus and we share the work around. There's plenty of spotlight, uh, you know, for uh, for everybody. And by working like that, it's harder for them to ignore us, you know, strengthen, yes. strengthen yes. numbers. And we've been able to get quite a few luminaries on this uh, upcoming summit, different, um, you know, councils from the governor of Pennsylvania, the lieutenant governor is going to speak there. And so we're hoping that by having everyone participate, we're not just educating the public and growing our coalition, but we're hoping that, you know, the the electeds and the appointeds that there'll be some buy-in on their point that they'll be more invested afterwards and you know they can help us get these other changes done so i'm just trying to stand in the middle and you know unite everybody me and my colleagues and try to make more out of this together than what it would be you know separated all right well jeff man uh thank you so much and again uh it's the deskovicfoundation.org conviction is the name of the Documentary. documentary short and and listen guys it's only about 20 minutes long i think it was was it even 20 was it like 17 it's 20 it's 20 minutes it was 20 okay not even 20 um, it's just 20 yeah so so guys it's it's very good it's very even if you listen to this whole podcast you'll still get something out of it and and your head will spin because you're going to be like what in the world is going on with our system and and then uh you'll you'll be able to see you know jeff his face and, uh, and just see what an awesome teddy bear guy, uh, Tom Cruise look like, uh, mm. that he is, but yeah, watch it conviction. It's on prime video, but be watching for it soon. Maybe an hour and a half, a longer documentary coming soon. So we're excited about that. Sure. Anything else you want to share? Yeah, I just want, yes. I just want to say, you know, just we need as a country, we need to do so much better in terms of the overall criminal justice system, even moving beyond just, you know, wrongful conviction. And that's one of the things I'm most happiest about, you know, that, that Gia shared my uh, vision in terms of, you know, the documentary short that, of course, it'll be about wrongful conviction because it's about my advocacy. And that's what it is primarily. But I also have this really strong secondary interest in these 
other justice reform issues. And so in conviction, you know, I'm talking about prison reform. I'm talking about solitary confinement. I'm talking about the terrible medical care that happens in prison. I'm terrible. I'm talking about the elderly in prison. I'm talking about, you know, parole reform and talking about compassionate release. You know, people, you know, by the time the bureaucracy finishes up the paperwork and makes a decision if someone's going to get a compassionate release, which they only give you if you're like terminally ill. I mean, there's been people that have passed away before the decision comes a day or two after. So I'm railing against all of those things, but in an easy to understand way in that documentary, trying to carry water for these other justice uh, issues. And that's the thing I'm most happy about is that I am trying to bring everyone along with me, you know, just to reach my arms out and metaphorically, hold hands with with all the issues all the people and just come forward just walk with me and that's what i'm doing in that documentary short so please watch and we're and if you like we're so thankful drop a comment in the comment section in the on amazon just further proof of concept so we can get the best possible platform when the hour and a half bigger feature comes out Absolutely. Are you on uh, Instagram or any other social media yes. other than Facebook? Yes, I uh, am. You are on Instagram. Okay. I am on Instagram, and and uh, I'm also uh, I'm also on uh, LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn. All right, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming on today. Background check. Um, you're you're an inspiration to me, and uh, and I know to everybody who hears this and watches uh, Conviction. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for staying up late and recording this uh, with us. And um, man, I, I'm looking forward to just hanging out with you more and, and getting to know you more in the future, man. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. When you come to Texas. Oh, for 100%. Look me up. I absolutely, yeah, whatever Texas, look me up. I definitely will. You'll be the second phone call. You'll be the first person to know about it after me. I'm just, you know, praying this pandemic can, can, can be over as soon as possible. I'm definitely coming to Texas and we're going to hang out, man. Maybe I might spend a week down there. All right. <laughs> I'll buy you, I'll cook you some, some good food yes. and we'll take you out for steak and all that. Oh, wow. That'd be wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you again for having God me. Bless you, bud. God bless you too. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Man, that interview was so, it moved me so much to, to hear all he's been through and to know what he's doing in spite of it all. When I hear stories like Richard Miles and, and, and Jeff's, and, and I'm, I'm reading a book right now by Jim McCloskey, who is the head of, Centurion, which is a uh, innocence project. Uh, the book is called When Truth is All You Have. And it just chronicles a lot of the wrongfully convicted individuals that Jim McCloskey and uh, Centurion has helped over the years, including Richard Miles. But when I'm as I'm reading this book and then I, as I'm interviewing Jeff, it just blows me away how our nation has come to this. And we're just a, our, our justice system is anything but just, you know, and I mean, just the fact that when he mentioned he got denied parole because he maintained his innocence and they want him to acknowledge, I mean, how, how weird is it that our society wants us to acknowledge and, and admit to things that we didn't even do? That is so twisted and, and, and kind of sick in a way. But, man, you know, uh, his faith in God, we didn't talk a lot about it, but it, it was intertwined in there a little bit. But he, he did tell me about a story that or a time in that, that season 
where six months into his prison sentence, he was ready to give it up and he was kind of, kind of mad at God, but then he just kind of leaned in and he, and he said, everybody that was sent my way, all the people that he talked about in his story that was sent his way, he believes were just angels from God sent with a mission to him to get him out of prison. And that's why he, he wants to be that angel for other people now. And that's why he believes his, his mission, he is sent to help all these people. You know, it really, it really got into my head a lot when he said that the, the real murderer and rapist went free while he got sent to prison and that perpetrator actually murdered somebody else while he was set free until, until they, until they got him. But I mean, how crazy is that? How crazy is that? And I remember Brian Stevenson in, in, in the movie, just mercy, his stat of one in nine people that are executed in our nation are innocent. I mean, that's 10, that's more than 10% of, of the people that are executed. What if 10% of our whole prison population is innocent? We're not ever going to know because our, our, our legal system, uh, Richard Miles calls it the criminal legal system, not the criminal justice system. I like that because there's really not much just about it anymore. But, you know, to to hear Jeff's story and to know that in the in the trial, the DNA of this other guy was available, but they were so focused on framing Jeff Deskovic that they tried to just sweep it under the rug that his DNA did not match that of the of the DNA that was found inside the girl. You know, and all the while the 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 right perpetrator was out there and they had his DNA and all they had to do was match. It's it's sickening sometimes. Um listen, if you really want to know if he looks like Tom Cruise or not, go to the show page and check out his pictures. He's a really nice guy. I love his foundation. Uh, if you want to donate to the Jeff Deskovic Foundation, go to deskovicfoundation.org. And like he said, he's he's uh, exonerated 10. Their foundation has exonerated 10. You know, we've had 13 in 2020 just in Texas alone. Just in Texas alone. And you never hear about them in the news because, you know, again, they don't like to admit that they're, they're wrong. But... I just, uh, man, I hope we can get more wrongfully convicted on here. And I hope that people begin to see that there are a lot of innocent people in prison. And, you know, Joseph in the Bible. <laughs> Joseph was a, was a convicted sex offender. I don't know if the church would have even accepted Joseph, you know, uh, because he was sent to prison uh, for, for rape. And I just hope that somehow, some way, we can we can begin to see our system in a different light. Because until we do, we're never going to see changes. And I'm thankful for Jeff and uh, past guests like uh, Priscilla Bordeo, who are championing 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 causes. That was hard for me to say um, to to get some stuff changed. And um, I'm thankful to all those. Go to uh, Jeff's website. Go watch his TEDx talk. You'll hear his story. If you have Prime Video, um, watch it. 
it's 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 eye opening. But thank you again for listening. Let's pray for Jeff and his foundation before we sign off here. Father, in Jesus' name, by your spirit, we thank you for Jeff. We thank you for doing the work in him a long time ago that set the foundation for how you were going to use him now. Lord, thank you for allowing him, his angels, really to stop himself from or to protect him in his suicide attempts, Lord. I'm glad he didn't go off to a remote island somewhere, just live out with his compensation. I'm glad he didn't commit suicide. I'm thankful, Lord, for the work he does and that you allow him to do. Continue to let that foundation thrive. Lord, we pray for funds to come in, large amounts to come in to his foundation. And we ask you to give him everything he needs to to have a successful 2021. And um, we, we pray for him, his family, and all the people who help him exonerate people. Thank you, Lord, for everyone listening. Lord, for everyone listening right now, I just pray that you give them a good week. I pray that you take their burdens off of them and, and give them your burden, which is light and easy. And uh, thank you for this podcast and the ability to just talk and share stories and give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Don't forget to, if you're listening on Apple, please, 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 don't forget to uh, rate us and give us a review. Uh, listen, listen on the website as well and share it. Spread the word. All right, follow us on social media. Come to Open House. Love you guys. See you next week. Uh, by the way, I turned 50 January 21st. I turned 50. I cannot believe that. I'm so old. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Background Check Podcast brought to you by Forgiven Felons, helping people with a past realize their future. For more information, please visit ForgivenFelons.org. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss the latest episode. I'm J.D. Gum, and this has been Background Check.